But opium has been used for quite a long time as well. Things like opium were a lot gentler. I mean, they made you feel better. So a lot of people really did turn to opium and opium products as a ways of making them feel better and curing themselves even though it didn't cure anything. It just made them feel better. Morphine was first developed in 1803 and has been used as a key painkiller ever since. It was first isolated by Frederick Wilhelm Adam Surtimer, who in addition to having a wonderfully German name himself, chose the name Morphine based on Morpheus, the Greek god of sleep. Nine years later, he said, and I quote, I consider it my duty to attract attention to the terrible effects of this new substance I called Morphium, in order that calamity may be averted, end quote. It clearly didn't take long for Frederick to realize the dangers that this new, more concentrated opiate presented. It would still be another century before prohibition in the U.S. would start making various forms of opium illegal. Interestingly enough, the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914 focused on limiting what doctors were able to prescribe and limited the ability for addict care as well. Yet the creation of morphine and heroin and the large-scale sale of them by pharmaceutical companies was not the first time that the overuse of opioids started with a visit to the physician or a pharmacy. Welcome to the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal, and this season we're covering the history of opium. In today's episode, we're officially starting our journey exploring the history of opium as a medicine, beginning with its origins, up until morphine gets developed in the early 1800s. And so, the beginnings. One thing that is not perfectly clear yet is where exactly opium poppies were first grown, though it seems likely to be in either Europe or the Middle East. The first evidence of humans living alongside poppy seems to be in the Jordan Valley from roughly 8 to 10,000 years ago. The specific poppy found now is actually poisonous, but it does contain some of the relevant alkaloids and can give a sense of the botanical origins of the plant. So going from the first signs of existence to the first signs of consumption, there we have to turn to Spain, where in a mining complex near Barcelona, poppy capsules were found stuck in a buried miner's bad teeth. The Swiss town of Melon near Lake Zurich offers some 7,000-year-old remains, which indicated that poppies were grown there. If they were used as a food, medicine, or something else is unclear, though. So jumping back to Spain, looking at a place called Cueva de los Murcielagos, and actually, quick side note, I'm going to be butchering a lot of names and locations throughout the show, so apologies ahead of time. Trying my best here. Anyway, so traces of what could indicate opium consumption were found at Cueva de los Murcielagos, and there's a chance that opium may have been used to help ease the pain of dying and to help those dying get ready for the spiritual journey ahead. There were also signs at multiple sites in England around 5,500 years ago that had traces of opium. Again, unclear what it was used for, though. The first signs in Sumeria go back roughly 5,000 years, near modern Baghdad. Tablets have been found near there with the word whole gil, which is frequently quoted as meaning joy plant, and so it's easy to find texts that talk about the use of this term as being proof that opium was used at this time. More recent work has actually argued that the term might translate as joy cucumber, not exactly sure what that was yet. The amount of opium used prior to around 3,500 years ago or so in Egypt is a contested matter. When the Ebers Papyrus, an Egyptian medical document, came out around 1550 BCE, 
it showed that the medicinal uses of opium were actually known in Egypt. So that was kind of one of the first confirmations of that. And some of the known remedies that contained opium were used for headaches, were used for constipation, were used to get your kids to stop crying, and generally used to fortify a person's constitution. And despite these medical uses, there's no real evidence that there was any kind of recreational usage going on at this point. On the more medicinal side, though, opium cultivation within a hundred or so years of the release of this medical document had become pretty commonplace in Upper Egypt with a variation of the poppy being grown there and opium poppies being harvested in places like Greece and Bulgaria too, so it was clearly starting to spread as well. If we jump over to Cyprus, opium was used ritually around 3,000 years ago. There's a kitchen found in the northwestern city of Ebla where there were signs of medicinal use. And just to be clear, signs in this case really talk more about what the preparation implied as opposed to having actual definitive proof of something happening there. So it is, it is a bit speculative. One thing that was found there was these decorated pots that had opium alkaloids in them. And these specifically designed pots were found in Egypt and the Levant, providing some of the first early signs of trade. I have found some research contesting whether or not these pots really had opium within them, but at the very least, some of the decorations uh, on the pots depicted opium, so that gives a sign of some of the cultural influence if not the direct usage of the plant. Opium was also referenced in legends and myths, again highlighting its cultural relevance. In Greece, it was associated with a bunch of gods ranging from Nyx, the god of night, Hypnos, the god of sleep, Morpheus, the god of dreams, and Thanatos, the god of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, sorry, the god of death. The Greek goddess Demeter held wheat in one hand and an opium poppy in the other. Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey refer to what may have been opium poppies. If you remember Hippocrates, you know from his oath and such, he actually wrote a variety of medical texts, some of which focused on some gynecological uses, one of which there was for a, quote, wandering womb. So we see opium was playing both a medical and a spiritual role pretty early on. And despite some of the positive associations, a general understanding of some of the dangers was starting to solidify around the time of the Romans and the Greeks. To quote from Opium, a book by David Halpern and David Blistein, quote, Ancient Greeks and Romans talked of physicians walking the fine line between poison and cure, users risking addiction and overdose, soldiers dealing with pain or desperate for courage, philosophers and poets discovering wisdom and delusion, political scandal, assassinations, and in one case, a death by suicide, end quote. Aristotle had also experimented with poppies and mentioned a work entitled Enquiry into Plants where there was a detailed description of how to get opium gum from the opium plant. Aristotle tutored Alexander the Great and may have been the person to have introduced Alexander to it. It is likely that Alexander had used opium during his travels just purely given the number of injuries that he sustained and given the general lack of analgesics at that point in time. As a little tangent, let's go ahead and run through what some of the injuries Alexander sustained. Quote, He got whacked in the head so hard that it broke his helmet in two, had a sword plunged through his thigh, was struck by a missile from a catapult that pierced his shield and wounded him seriously, took an arrow through the calf, was struck by a stone that hit his head and neck, was hit by a dart through the shoulder, took an arrow in the ankle, Achilles style, and took another arrow through his lungs, which bled badly and knocked him unconscious, end quote. So yeah, not surprising that the man needed some painkillers. And there are some texts that claim that Alexander was the person who introduced opium to India, though I could not find definitive proof of that. 
Around 2300 years ago, the Greeks knew of multiple uses of opium ranging from helping soldiers cope with the pain and trauma of war to tolerance buildups to the fact that some people struggled with addiction for the substance, though they didn't call it that at the time. Assisted suicide using opium also became a thing in ancient Greece. One example of this was on the island of Chaos, where, quote, those over the age of 60 were supposed to drink hemlock or poppy, or they became weak or disabled, end quote. And so, yeah, they were pretty much given a poppy latex, hemlock, and wine mixture, and yeah, I guess that's how some folks were celebrating their 60th. A related example was when opium suicide was actually deemed to be a better option than slowly starving or being slaughtered during a siege by Athens. So before opium made it to the Romans, it was used not just for physical and spiritual healing, but also euthanizing the elderly and suicide. Though admittedly, the euthanizing part seems to have been a temporary usage of it. A physician and pharmacologist named Pedanius Dioscordes released his five-volume Demateria Medica after writing it for over 20 years, and it included a variety of ways of administering opium. This ranged from mixing it with polenta for skin infections, to mixing it with egg yolk and saffron for inflammation, to using it as a suppository for insomnia. Importantly, Pedanius thought that doctors before him were being too conservative using opium, and so he encouraged people to not dilute it. His opposition claimed that consuming non-diluted opium might make a person go blind or die, and his irrefutable evidence was that, well, he took it and he was fine, which is definitely one way of going about things. A contemporary of his wrote about using opium for insomnia, severe headaches, joint pain, and anal fissures, and this contemporary also suggested taking opium in a pill form, and once wrote that, quote, the sweeter the dreams, the rougher the awakening, end quote. I was not able to find a definitive sense of when opium first arrived in the Roman Empire, but this does seem like one of the realistic ways the plant could have transferred over. Another important historical figure in the medical context is Galen, who was amongst many other things, Marcus Aurelius' doctor. So Galen, who actually has more surviving writing than Plato or Aristotle, he carefully administered doses of opium and other medicines to Aurelius. Many of Galen's methods were actually medicinal standards until the 1800s. He does have a very long list of accomplishments that uh, it may not be too germane to fully run through, but he was very influential on medicine for the next thousand years, and specifically the separation between surgeon and patient that he aided was a crucial one in the context of the overall role between patients and doctors. But going to one of his key patients, Aurelius received opium poppy in his regular medication. There was at least one campaign on the Danube that took place after he had been heavily using opium to such an extent that signs of withdrawal were noted. Though understandings of addiction and withdrawal were still a ways away from where they stand today, and even today we still have a ways to go, but Galen was already stating that, quote, he, Aurelius, was obliged to have recourse again to the compound which contained poppy juice, since this was now habitual with him, end quote. Aurelius is frequently cited as one of history's first addicts, or at the very least, the first famous one. Galen played an important role in spreading the popularity of opium. As a result of his backing and given that he was a prominent physician, opium ended up being sold in many druggist stalls and markets around Rome. Going back to the start of the episode, this just serves as another reminder of the idea that many people's relationship with opioids started with the person that they trusted to alleviate their pain or make them overall feel better. And so for a quick recap before moving on to the next part, opium's initial history mirrored the general evolution of major cultures and civilizations. 
Opium clearly had its own roles within medicine, spirituality, and culture, and clearly was an important painkiller in its own right since the early days of medicine. And as the role of the Roman Empire overall would wane, the epicenter of medicinal activity would shift towards the Muslim empires. We'll explore this shift by looking at the growth of the Silk Road. The Silk Road was not, as its name implies, a single road. It was more of a collection of routes that connected East Asia to Europe. Parts of what we now think of as the Silk Road have been used for millennia. As Christianity started to spread under Emperor Constantine in the 4th centuries, Rome was generally on a downward trend. Opium's presence didn't leave Europe just yet, though. Its final vestiges in the 5th and 6th centuries were actually with the Benedictine monks, who were growing opium in a number of monasteries around Rome and the Empire. These monks had revived the works of classical physicians such as Hippocrates. But despite this short revival, the usage of opium in Europe was not widespread in the following centuries. So let's jump to the Persian physicians to have a sense of how it was actually evolving. Poppies were still being cultivated in Alexandria in Egypt around 650. By the 800s, medicine was advancing amongst most physicians in and around modern-day Iran. Razis, who was a pioneer in neurosurgery and ophthalmology, you know, eye disease and the like, wrote over 200 books and a 23-page encyclopedia of anatomy and disease. Amongst his work, he mentioned that opium could be applied topically for inflammation of joints and gout. But Razis was only one of many scholars from the modern Middle East who both contributed to the history of medicine and wrote about opium. Abu al-Qasim al-Zarawi, who wrote the first illustrated surgery book and invented a bunch of surgical instruments, also wrote about opium as an anesthetic. Moses Maimonides had given opium to the dying because he considered that the dying shouldn't have been allowed to just suffer. As we get closer to the turn of a new millennium, in the year 983, the use of opium was noted in the Encyclopedia of Chinese Medicines where it was recommended for dysentery. This was not the first recorded usage of opium in China, there was actually evidence of its use by China's first surgeon as an anesthetic hundreds of years earlier. This goes to show the extent of how many cultures across Asia and northern Africa were using opium medicinally around then. Avicenna was probably one of the foremost opium experts of all time in addition to all of his other accomplishments. He was able to memorize the Quran by 10, started studying medicine by 13, was taking patients by 16, and would go on to write over 400 books. Specific to opium, he recognized the importance of having a standard size, which he based on chickpeas, and is actually a form of measurement still used in certain countries. Avicenna also worked to standardize production methods in order to have more consistent potency for medical use. He was very aware of the potential of overdose and generally believed in treating the causes of pain, only resorting to opium when it was absolutely necessary. Science and medicine were flourishing, and as part of medicinal practices, opium became known as the father of sleep. If we take a quick glance to Europe around this time, there were no signs of usage in England or France, though there were some signs in northern Denmark of use by the Vikings there. In the 1200s, we saw the beginnings of a rise in higher-quality European medical schools. There was a work called Premnon Physicon, which is the first surviving work in Europe that mentions opium. Some of the physicians serving with the Crusades may have brought back some knowledge acquired from those educated in Arabic countries. This marked a shift towards empiricism and a focus on longer-term patient well-being that had been prevalent in the Islamic Golden Age. By the middle of the 14th century, the Black Death had left a massive impact on Europe. 
Somewhere between 75 and 200 million people died, accounting for between 30 to 60% of Europe's population. Towards the start of the 1400s, a middle class was starting to arise as seen in cities around Antwerp and Amsterdam, and at the same time trade in areas such as London was getting revived as well. Most relevant for this podcast, opium was becoming a key medicine as pharmacopoeia started gaining more attention after the sheer volume of deaths that had been witnessed so recently. Opium was also starting to get regulated to some degree as soon as it started arriving again in the 14th century. One example that highlights how opium was experimented with in a medical context comes from anatomist Gabriel Fallopio, who was given authorization to euthanize a criminal and to dissect them for the purpose of learning medicine. And I quote, The Grand Duke of Tuscany ordered a man to be given over to us, for us to kill as we wished and then dissect. I gave him two drum of opium, but he suffered from quarton fever, and its crisis halted the effect of the drug. I gave him another two drums of opium, and he died. As medical texts spread after Gutenberg in the mid-1400s, the use of medicines such as laudanum began to spread. Laudanum is an opium tincture made from the poppy plant, which would go on to be quite the rage in the West. Paracelsus introduced laudanum pills that also became popular, though laudanum is mostly associated with liquid and not the pill form. By the 16th century, a somewhat steady demand for opium was already established in Europe. This demand would begin to increase over time once Portugal and later the Spanish, Dutch, and English followed the Portuguese into Asian waters in 1498. I also wanted to stress the role that medicine, medicinal schools, and medical texts played in the increases of usage that had started at this point in time. So opium was being sold by either government-backed merchants or by medical practitioners, which would mostly be the case for another 400 years until prohibition would take hold in the early 1900s. I want to take a moment to stress the historical milestones of opium so far. Prior to the 8th century, opium was inconsistently approached by various cultures across Asia, Europe, and North Africa. From the 8th century to the late 1400s, opium had some standardization, had become part of medicinal curriculums, and slowly started becoming more commonplace as a medicine. However, the biggest changes would come once the Europeans arrived in Asia. As we move forward in our exploration, there are also going to be talk of the links between the rise in opium production with the growth of colonialism and capitalism. The next episode will have a lot more details on European expansion and colonization of Asia, exploring opium in the context of trade. But for the rest of this episode, we're just going to look at a few high-level medical trends. The next important milestone in terms of the modes of consumption was the proliferation of laudanum. It was first introduced by a, quote, cantankerous and absurdly talented physician, philosopher, astronomer, astrologer, theologian, alchemist, and opium eater named Paracelsus, end quote. Laudanum would go on to be a household item until patent medicine started getting regulated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Leonardo da Vinci also played his own role in popularizing the drug, His formula for laudanum basically involved some orange and lemon juice, and long story short, the acidity in both of those apparently did help the body metabolize the morphine better. So he was on to something. In 1667, Seidenheim released his new laudanum and the recipe for it. Yay, open source medicine. The creation of a popular liquid formula cemented the split between usage between the West and the East. In Europe and the United States, liquid laudanum would be the most popular, while Asia saw smoking reign supreme. The liquid option was also the faster-acting one, so you can draw whatever conclusions from that that you will. In 1698, the London Dispensary opened. 
We're not going to get into the specifics of the dispensary, but the takeaway is that its creation really marked the separation between doctor and drug maker, as Lucy Ingalls noted in Milk of Paradise. This was an important step in the birth of the pharmaceutical industry, especially as it evolved in the upcoming centuries. Around the time the dispensary opened, we also saw the creation of Thomas Dover's powder, which itself would become a staple until World War II. From a supply perspective, most of the opium that was supplied to Europe was coming from Turkey at this point. Egypt still had what was considered to be the highest quality opium, but for various reasons, mainly political and religious, Egyptian opium was not being imported. Opium was becoming part of common medicine, but it didn't really spread to any notable level of usage just yet. People were definitely aware of how deadly opium could be, though. The 18th century saw an increase in usage of laudanum in the West, and significant work was undertaken in terms of better understanding opiates and their effects. In the UK and the US, there were less checks and balances in place, and so patent medicines would really expand in the 16 and then very much so in the 17 and 1800s. By the middle of the 18th century, middle class in both the UK and the US were both using patent medicines. And there are reasons to believe that this led to both some direct opium consumption that was actually cultivated in the U.S. One example of that was the fact that Thomas Jefferson had even grown opium at his estate. The medicinal nature of opium and its derivatives has mostly stayed the same throughout history, at least until the 1800s. Starting thousands of years ago, opium was used in a few forms until the Renaissance encountered it and laudanum was born. The next major milestone in the history of opium would come with the creation of morphine in 1803, where we'll start our next episode on opium as a medicine. As of right now, it looks like we might have three or four episodes in between. We also haven't talked much about smoking yet, but we'll cover that in the next episode where we're going to be taking a step back to explore opium as a commodity that's traded. As part of that, we're going to look at the evolution of trade in ancient times, out the Silk Road, at the impacts of Europeans in Asia, particularly on China, and how the markets evolved through the 1800s. Before I let you go, I want to quickly review some high-level takeaways from everything we've spoken about today. At this point, the milestones so far have been humans cultivating opium poppies, humans starting to use and trade opium, the realization of how to get opium latex by slicing open the poppies, standardization of opium, medicinal adoption and promotion of opium, creation of laudanum and other patent medicines, and the rise of pharmaceuticals and the variety of medicines available. Until the Europeans got to Asia, there were no major signs of addiction, though some high levels of usage may have existed in parts of India and Persia. So how did people acquire things such as the drowsy syrup from Shakespeare's Othello? The way that most people got their opium was through a doctor or pharmacist. This trend continued as we saw the rise of opiates such as morphine in the 19th century, the creation of more synthetics such as fentanyl in the 20th century, and then the Oxycontin and overall opioid prescription crisis that started in the 1990s. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions, and credits on the free audio go to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's. Please feel free to reach out if you want to get in touch. You can reach me on History of DIS, that's History of Drugs and Society, History of DIS at gmail.com. Subscribing on iTunes or sharing with a friend would be much appreciated. 
Some of the main sources that were heavily referenced here included Opium by John Halpern and David Blistein, Milk of Paradise by Lucy Engels, and Opium's Human History by Lucy Engels, which was an article published back in March of 2019. You can also check the show notes to find a full list of citations. Be well, and speak soon. Thank you.